This week on the Myths and Legends podcast, we're starting the real story of Pocahontas and John Smith. And you'll see that the history is very different from popular myths. You'll also see why if your water tastes like a salty toilet, that you really, really should not drink that water. Then, on the Creature of the Week, you'll see why, if you're having a new baby, you'll want to not only practice swaddling, but practice giving very quick haircuts in the dark. This is the Myths and Legends Podcast, Episode 36, The Empire Business. This is a podcast where I tell stories from folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories you might not have heard, but really should. Today's an interesting story for this podcast. On one hand, it's not really a legend. There's actual history behind it, and the repercussions of the events shaped North America. That being said, it's morphed into a completely different story, one that's oftentimes a melodramatic, early American love story. It doesn't help that everyone who wrote about these things at the time was English, with, to varying degrees, a strong agenda. It also doesn't help that the story has been adapted to the point where it's almost unrecognizable. Pocahontas, an 11-year-old when she met John Smith, has been turned into a love interest. The rescue of John Smith from her supposedly treacherous father, Powhatan, is believed to be an invention of Smith to paint the natives in a bad light. Given that at the time of writing of that particular anecdote, much later than today's story, the English were in all-out war with the Powhatan people. Even though the literary tradition of this story diverges sharply from what people believe actually happened, this is an instance where the history might be more interesting than the myth. Just as a quick note, we're going to go into both sides of the Pocahontas story, look at things from the English perspective and the Native American perspective. This week, we're starting with the English traveling in North America and their dealings with the Powhatan Confederacy, mostly from their point of view. But next week, we'll look at things from the Native American point of view. I really want this to be representative of both sides of the conflict. Anyway, we'll get started, and I'll talk about the time period, the culture, and the locations as we go, because unlike most stories on this podcast, they play a very large role. The Werewinds Powhatan, named Wahoon Seneca, looked on and allowed a smile. His warriors were cleaning up the dead, and the women and children were being taken back to Werowakamoko, a city from which he ruled almost 30 tribes. Some tribes he controlled by marriage, some by threat of force, some by arrows, spears, and clubs. The Chesapeake tribe, now captive, fleeing, or dead, was an example of the last one on that list. He breathed deeply. It was over, now. Usually he would have sought a peaceful assimilation into what could be loosely defined as an empire, but unfortunately for the Chesapeake tribe, they were in the wrong place with the wrong name. They needed to be destroyed. They were too great a threat. One of his priests had prophesied a few months ago that a nation would rise from the Chesapeake Bay to overtake his own. He stood and watched the women and children in tears. Now he could finally put his fears to rest. He had control over every tribe on the peninsulas, and the Spanish hadn't sailed anywhere near here for years. There had been Englishmen, but their smelly little colony to the north was destroyed years ago, and they hadn't been seen since. Looking out over the Chesapeake Bay, he felt content with his power, not knowing that, on the other side of the ocean, 
The Virginia Company was setting sail, ready to land in the Chesapeake Bay, and found a nation. A few years earlier, a slave was cutting wheat in modern-day Turkey, then the Ottoman Empire. His iron collar chafed against his neck, and though he tried to hide it, the top of his bald head, shaved bare by his masters, burned in the sun. The year was 1602, and the Englishman known as Captain John Smith was a slave. He had been tasked with threshing wheat nearly a league, or about three and a half miles, away from his master's castle. He had been captured in war against the Turks, and though his first master was kind, this one was harsh. John Smith, an Englishman, far, far away from home, gritted his teeth when he heard the Pasha riding up. Most of the time the beatings came without warning, without reason. John Smith expected it this time. The nearest slave was barely visible. Anyone who could hear his screams and would object to the mistreatment of the property was miles away. He had been put here on purpose. John Smith glanced up. The slave driver already had his whip out. Smith took a deep breath. It would end here. He didn't speak the same language as the slave driver, and there were any number of things he could have done to anger the man, but it didn't matter. A beating was the same in any language. Out of the corner of his eye, John Smith saw the slave driver on his horse, whip ready to strike. The man brought the whip down hard on the insolent Englishman, and John Smith caught it. He wrapped it around his right arm and pulled as hard as he could. It all happened so quickly that the slave driver didn't think to let go of the whip. The short, hardened English captain pulled sharply, and the portly slave driver toppled off his horse and onto the ground. The slave driver hit the ground, and in a few seconds, when he regained his sense, he immediately tried to grab for his pistol, but John Smith, standing over him, had grabbed it first. The English captain smiled, but tossed the firearm aside. A shot ringing out over the fields would draw attention. The slave driver cowered as the slave picked up the threshing bat he was using. Maybe he begged for his life. We don't know. But we do know that John Smith beat the man to death right there in the field. When he was sure the man was dead, Smith carefully removed his clothes, avoiding the blood. They were large, but they would do. When he was dressed like the nobleman, he dragged the body into the tall grass, mounted the horse, and rode to freedom. At the age of 22, John Smith was a legend already. His father had intended for him to become a shopkeeper, but Smith was only a few months into his apprenticeship when his father died from an illness. Freed to see the world, he joined the English effort against the Spanish. And we'll talk more about the Spanish soon, but they were a superpower at the time. Even after the defeat of the Spanish Armada by the English in 1588, they were still the preeminent naval power and had already conquered much of South America and modern-day Central America and Mexico. Anyway, John Smith fought them when he was only 16 years old, and he saw that he had a lot to learn. He went home and shut himself up with nothing but books. He learned practical knowledge, like how to make explosives, but he also learned military techniques and strategies and Stoic philosophy. Everything he could get his hands on until he decided he wanted to return to the continent and put his knowledge to use. 
he joined up in the War of the Holy Roman Empire versus the Ottoman Turks, and, after many successful duels and battles, he was awarded the rank of captain in the army of the Holy Roman Emperor. This is where he slips from the official records, because in skirmishes with the Turks, he was wounded and presumed dead. Buried underneath a pile of corpses, John Smith groaned. Fortunately, scavengers picking things off the bodies of the fallen heard his groans and helped him out. They bandaged his wounds and made it super clear that they weren't doing this out of the goodness of their heart when they took him to the slave market. Being an Englishman, he was somewhat of a curiosity there in the Ottoman Empire during that time. He was immediately sold to a Turkish nobleman who thought that this funny little man would make a nice present for his mistress, Charatza Trebizonda. When he arrived at her estate in Istanbul, she became his mistress in more ways than one, and they fell in love. Trebizonda became nervous, though, that her mother might start to catch on to her frequent dalliances with the English slave and Selsmith. So Trebizonda contacted her brother. He lived along the Black Sea, and she told him all about Smith and how she planned to marry him. Christians that converted to Islam and swore fealty to the sultan could have successful careers in the government. She asked her brother to treat Smith kindly and teach him the language. The brother, named Timur, did precisely the opposite. Probably not thrilled about this English slave likely being his brother-in-law, he punished Smith mercilessly. Smith was stripped naked and beaten upon arrival, and his beard and hair were, likely very carefully as to not hurt the prisoner, shaved off. He was shackled with an iron collar and set to work in the fields in the hot Turkish summer. Smith's account says that the brother is the man Smith beat to death in the fields, before not escaping west, back through Istanbul, but east. He rode north along the eastern side of the Black Sea, a fugitive. He escaped through modern-day Russia, and it would take another year before he was able to make his way, slowly, across the continent and back to England. Once he was in safer territory, he tracked down his commanders in the Holy Roman Empire and got the riches and honor due to him. Stepping out of the story quickly, if you're thinking all of this sounds a bit fantastical, well, so do I. As it turns out, the only source we have on this short Englishman using his wiles to seduce a powerful noblewoman, his daring escape from captivity, and making it across the length of early modern Europe with nothing but the clothes on his back is, as you guessed it, John Smith's account. He published this particular account 28 years after the fact, in 1630. He was basically an action hero here saying, yeah, after John Smith was awesome at war, John Smith was pretty awesome as a slave too. John Smith is amazing. Signed, John Smith. Before moving on, we should talk about John Smith. Smith, it seems, was his own biggest fan. At least that's how he comes off in his writings. His English companions found him to be arrogant and abrasive and his memory among the Powhatan people seems to be as a treacherous monster. There are a few different writings when it comes to John Smith. There are his 1608 letters back home, and then there are his longer works of the 1620s and 1630s. The 1608 letters are generally seen as the most potentially accurate, but there's doubt cast on later works, some of which were written during a war with the Powhatan people, spoiler alert, I guess, so the natives automatically come off as dangerous and devious. Anyway, We'll cover all that in time. He sailed to England, where he found his people caught up with the idea of sailing west. The year was 1605, a hundred or so years after Columbus had sailed the ocean blue in 1492. The Spanish and Portuguese had been colonizing South America, Central America, and modern-day Mexico, slash horrifically and brutally destroying and enslaving populations, 
The English, however, had consistent and steady failures trying to colonize North America. As it turns out, making demands on people that outnumber you 100 to 1 with muskets that might be able to fire four rounds per minute, not a great idea. The English were hungry for their portion of the new world, and rumors about the land made it all the more tantalizing. Basically, they thought the area was teeming with gold. One play, in a slightly exaggerated way, talked about how much the natives of Virginia loved the English, and how even their chamber pots were made of gold, and children went out to beaches and picked up rubies and diamonds that littered the coast, and just threw them away. Captain John Smith returned home, and we aren't sure how or why he got connected with the Virginia Company, but he secured a spot on the voyage. It's probably because he was a competent military man who would be an asset if things didn't go well with either the Spanish or the natives. And real quickly, the Virginia Company was going to set up a colony and search for gold and a passage west in Virginia. There were three ships that left in December 1606, and their occupants varied. There weren't any slaves. The slave trade wouldn't reach Virginia for another 20 or so years. There were a number of gentlemen going along. Some people hired by the Virginia Company of London, like John Smith, and a number of colonists. 105 people in all left that December morning, expecting to find gold, welcoming natives, and an easy life in the new world. It was bad even before it began. The Susan Constant, one of the ships they would take, hit another ship while sitting at anchor a month before the departure. When the case went to court, the sailors on the Susan Constant were accused of being drunk. Yes, if the people you're about to leave for a month's long voyage across the ocean with make headlines for being drunk at the wheel and crashing into someone while sitting at anchor, you probably want to make sure you held on to your receipt. Regardless, like I said, 105 people left. They were eager to get started and carve out their place in the new world. The Virginia Company gave them orders for the new settlement in the form of three sealed boxes. There was one on each ship. They were to be opened no more than 48 hours after landing in Virginia. They would instruct the colonists and name the leaders of the new settlement. The ships left on December 20th, 1606, and the winds were favorable. For about two hours until they stopped dead off the coast of England and stayed in the channel for two weeks. Yep, alternating terrible winds and storms kept them pinned down less than 20 miles from home. They could see England from where they sat in their ships. It's like getting excited for a cross-country trip and then stopping at the Super 8 three doors down and staying there for two weeks. Except that this was a cold and cramped ship where people were sleeping on piles of hay. Tempers predictably grew. Like some other ships at the time, this one didn't have oars, and they were completely dependent on the winds, and the winds were not treating them well. There were many people on the ships, but I'm going to keep the names to a minimum. The leader of the expedition, until they reached Virginia, was the seasoned captain of the largest ship. His name was Newport. He was a serious, capable, and skilled mariner. He wouldn't be staying in Virginia, but would shuttle the ships back and forth across the Atlantic bringing the colony supplies and picking up massive amounts of gold they were sure to acquire. One of the bigger investors of the journey was a man named Edward Maria Wingfield, who also came along. History does not view him well. Think about every stereotype of a stuffed shirt aristocrat making an uncomfortable intercontinental sea voyage, 
and that's basically Wingfield. Hundreds of years later, he was viewed as a pompous, self-confident person. He had opinions, and as someone who thought very highly of his rank and birth, felt everyone needed to hear his opinions all the time. It was on the extended and unplanned stop in the channel that Wingfield and John Smith started a feud that would last until the new world. Wingfield wanted to go back home, at least for a little while. I mean, home was right there. They could wave to people on the cliffs. This was horrible. John Smith and the more experienced mariners knew that they just needed to wait. The winds would change in time. Besides, if they found a way to dock and everyone went ashore, it would be a month until they were able to find everyone and get them back to the ship in the event that things became favorable. We are staying. It worked out, eventually, and they got on their way. In a world without GPS or, you know, clocks that worked at sea, it wasn't always easy to know where you were or how fast you were going. Seriously, the clocks at the time wouldn't work on a ship, so they only had rudimentary ways of calculating longitude. Fortunately, there was an easy-ish way to get to the New World. The trade winds. They are winds that blow from east to west, from West Africa to the Caribbean. Basically, if you were in England and you wanted to get to Virginia, you couldn't just make the near-lateral jaunt across the Atlantic, but you had to sail down to West Africa, across the ocean there, until you hit the Caribbean islands and then up the eastern coast of the not-yet-remotely United States. We're not quite sure what happened at their stop in the Canary Islands, but upon leaving, John Smith was said to be in irons, in prison on the Susan Constant. One author speculated that the impudent John Smith made the mistake of drawing on his experience with the area and skills to help out some of his shipmates, and Wingfield, who was an English gentleman and very much not looking for pointers, promptly threw him into prison on the ship for the rest of the trip. John Smith watched from his cell as the ship rocked across the Atlantic crossing. He saw their first encounters with the natives behind bars, and he learned of the first death in the Caribbean. A gentleman named Edward Brooks died while on a hunting expedition. As it turns out, running in thick clothing across a Caribbean island with no water, well, that turned out to be a bad idea. Smith was below deck when, after leaving the Caribbean, they got lost. Again. They were sailing north to Virginia, but they hadn't seen land in 10 days, when they should have made it to the Chesapeake Bay three days prior. They almost, and I'm not joking, decided to give up the whole endeavor and sail back to England when they saw Virginia emerge over the horizon. There was no rejoicing when they finally made it to land. They were just exhausted and happy to be off the boats. All but John Smith, that is. He was still in prison but they didn't know that all throughout the forest and invisible to the English were eyes watching them, studying them, and getting ready for these strangers that had landed. And we'll see that things don't really get off to a great start right after this. This week's episode is brought to you by Weebly. So, I've built websites by hand, but it takes me forever to do even the most basic things. But like I said last time, I created a pretty cool, to me, it's a book blog, website using Weebly. And seriously, it's super, super easy. Okay, so story time. In college, I was super cool. I was the Scrabble Club webmaster. That level of nerdiness shouldn't really surprise you. I do have a podcast about mythology, 
Anyway, in the bad old days of the internet, you had to code everything by hand and upload the HTML and CSS and other things via FTP. I do not miss those days. There are too many acronyms. Luckily, Weebly makes it super easy to build a website. And unlike the bad old days, you don't have to know how to code at all. It's so easy to design your page exactly how you want it by dragging and dropping the different elements. The professionally designed themes are really cool and there's one for any idea you have in mind. And you can update your site on any device. So yeah, if you have an idea that you've been sitting on for a while or a business you wanna start, join the over 30 million people who are already dreaming big with Weebly. Get started today for free at weebly.com myths. That's W-E-E-B-L-Y dot com slash myths. M-Y-T-H-S, weebly.com slash myths. This episode is brought to you by Loot Crate. As you know, Loot Crate is a monthly subscription box service for geek and gamer items and pop culture gear. For less than $20 a month, you can get four to eight items that include licensed stuff, apparel, collectibles, and unique one-of-kind items, and more. Loot Crate is more than just a subscription service, though. It's an entire community of fans that share their experience and interact with each other around the unboxing of each month's crate. The community aspect is actually pretty cool. I looked into it and linked it in the show notes, but there are dogs wearing Adventure Time shirts, people putting Viking drinking horns on their heads and becoming Viking unicorns, which, awesome, and a Doctor Who t-shirt, where, if you see someone wearing it, don't blink. Loot Crate guarantees $40 plus in value in each crate, and sometimes it's a lot more. Every month there's a different theme, and all the items are curated around that theme. Previous crates have included things from Star Wars, Marvel, The Walking Dead, Legend of Zelda, and more. June's theme will be exploring some of the ways things can go horribly wrong with Dystopia, featuring things from Robocop, Terminator 2 Judgment Day, The Matrix, Bioshock Infinite, and Fallout 4. There's a figure, cool collectibles, and of course, the dystoporific monthly tea. I'm a huge fan of Robocop, Terminator 2, and The Matrix, so I'm looking forward to this crate. Remember that you only have until the 19th at 9 p.m. Pacific to subscribe and receive that month's crate. And when the cutoff happens, that's it. It's over. So go to lootcrate.com legends and enter code legends to save $3 on your new subscription today. That day a small group went off and explored the heavily wooded region of the Chesapeake Bay. Coming back to the ships at night, Newport, the captain, just over the waves, thought he heard something. One solitary footstep from behind him. He froze, reached for his musket, and then the man to his right of him gasped and groaned. The arrows went into his shoulder and thigh, he collapsed, and the other men broke and ran for the ship, but Newport turned and fired. But he was surprised by how far away the dark figures were. They were barely visible on the edges of the forest. And as Newport looked for cover and tried to reload his musket, arrows kept whizzing by and sticking in the sand all around him. By the time he was able to reload, he aimed at the forest, but the dark figures were gone. Newport backed up to the ships, knowing that the natives were still there in the forest, watching and waiting. Not really commiserating. We should back up and talk about the English conception of the Native Americans. Before I get started, this is a pretty loaded topic. Whatever intentions the English, Spanish, French, or anyone had at first doesn't change or justify the next few hundred years. Basically, 
the conquistadors did some very bad things in South America. From kidnapping, to slavery, to outright genocide. It was a dark time. The English, who didn't need extra reasons to dislike the Spanish and Portuguese at the time, decided that they were going to try a different approach. They had resolved not to follow in the blood-soaked footsteps of the Spanish. They were going to try and work with the natives. They hoped that if they behaved well towards the people, then the natives might hopefully trade with them and help keep them alive. They were instructed to find a spot of unoccupied land and settle there so as to not offend anyone. You can probably see the issue with this right away in the definition of unoccupied. Just because there aren't structures on a site doesn't mean that no one is making the claim to it. They eventually found the Jamestown site and named it after the English King James, right off the James River, because they were very creative. It's a little peninsula with a swampy land bridge to the mainland. The issue? A local tribe, though they weren't there and visible when the English founded the site, felt that the site was their territory. To me, it seems like someone walking into your house and noticing that, hey, that basement looks pretty nice. I didn't see anyone down there today, so I live there now. Aside from the obvious territory issues, there was a self-superiority of the English toward the natives. It was, according to one author, because the English saw themselves as Christian and civilized, and the natives, in their eyes, were neither. In their mind, they were doing the natives a favor by bringing Christianity and a civilized society to them. They thought that they would be welcomed once the natives understood what they were bringing. So now that guy living in your basement just has some pointers on how you should live your life. Also, he has a musket and a cannon. The English used their own kind of revisionist history to justify this, and the Romans bringing civilization to the British Isles. Never mind the Celts that fought tooth and nail against the Roman occupation for decades. No, the Britons totally welcomed the Romans and their civilization with open arms. The British thought that the natives, once they understood the benefits of civilization and Christianity, would welcome them as well. Real quickly, even though the English had orders to treat the natives with something resembling respect, there are still a lot of issues here. The English seemed to be coming with the idea that they were better than the natives, culturally, spiritually, and in almost every way, and that the natives will, eventually, happily conform to their way of life, or, at the very least, like their presence in Virginia enough to provide food for them. The Native Americans in Virginia had some bad experiences already with the Europeans, and I wouldn't view this as the native shot first, or anything like that. We also have to remember that a lot of these accounts come to us from Englishmen, who, apart from their own biases, were in a war with the Powhatan people, when a few of the accounts were written. As Newport helped to pull arrows out of one of his men, when they made it back to the ship, he questioned just how welcome they were. No one died in that initial attack, and even though things were off to an aggressive start, the English had orders not to offend the native populations. In fact, they had many, many orders. After landing, they unsealed the orders from the Virginia Company. It had several logistic points, like how they should look for a place upriver to guard from a sea attack from the Spanish, and not let any natives block their access to the sea, to inform on them to the Spanish. If you trust a native as a guide, maybe take a compass and a map with you, so that if someone deserts you, you might be able to find your way back. And now that you're here, no one is allowed to leave without orders from your leader. That's not ominous, and not that you'll have horrifying and lethal experiences, but if you do, let's keep that quiet in your letters back home. Also, we'll be reading your mail. There was, too, the whole reason they were there. Money. 
there were two main ways the Virginia company hoped to make money. The first was gold, rumors of gold chamber pots being maybe more than a little exaggerated. In a few years, they would be sending shipfuls of dirt back to England to be tested for the mere possibility of gold. Spoiler alert, it doesn't work out. The next thing they were really hoping to find was a passageway west to China and India. They thought that the Pacific Ocean was maybe just a short hike past the mouth of the James River. If they could find a way to get to China and India that didn't involve sailing all the way around the southern tip of Africa, then they would be very rich. As anyone who has looked at a globe ever can probably tell you, the Pacific Ocean is just slightly farther west than the mouth of the James River in southeast Virginia. Anyway, that's what they came looking for. But for now, they needed to find a site and elect a leader. There was a ruling council from which the president would be elected. Newport, since he was going back, wasn't on the council. Wingfield, the kind of pompous aristocrat investor, definitely was on the council, along with the other gentlemen. As Wingfield read the list, though, and got to the very last name, he let out a sigh and rolled his eyes. Really? John Smith was on the council. Let's keep this quiet. And they did. For weeks, John Smith was not only kept as a prisoner on the ship, remember the alleged treason when they were in the Canary Islands, but kept ignorant of his powerful position. After much exploration and debate, they finally decided on the site of what would come to be known as Jamestown. To them, it seemed like a perfect spot. As a small peninsula on a peninsula, there was only a swampy land bridge to the mainland, easily defensible in the event of attack, and the water was deep enough for them to dock their ships right off the coast. Those, of course, are the only two factors to consider when picking a spot for a permanent colony. A few weeks had passed, and Wingfield, surprise, was appointed president. John Smith was released, but told by the sneering Wingfield that he wouldn't see his spot on the council, and he might just be on the next ship back to England, where formal charges would be brought against him. Still, they needed everyone's help to get Jamestown up and running. So, rubbing his wrists and walking into the daylight, John Smith set foot on the new world. John Smith was surprised to learn that all the muskets and guns and weapons were still on the ships. Wingfield, the president, had taken the phrase, take care not to offend, very literally. In the most recent weeks, he had been trying to establish a trade relationship with the natives, and it had been mostly going pretty well. Newport and a few others had been invited to a feast, and they weren't being shot at it anymore. So, win-win. They even had their first meeting with a chief planned, the chief of the Paspaeg people. He arrived with his entourage of 100 men. Unfortunately, he was so offended when a few of the colonists who had pistols wouldn't put them down, that he left. In addition to keeping the guns on the ship, they didn't construct a fort at all. Only a short stick fence. It was outside that short stick fence that there were the first inklings that something might not be right. Forty Paspaeg men showed up with a deer a few nights later. They just wanted to stay the night in the English town. The English said, no, no thank you. This deer is nice and we'll keep it, but no thanks in the sleepover. Just kidding. I mean, they did refuse, but they weren't polite about it. They made fun of the men's weapons and the natives left in anger. So we're going to back up and talk super briefly about the situation with the Native Americans in Virginia around this time. The Paspaeg people were part of the Powhatan Confederacy. 
the Powhatan Confederacy was a whole lot of tribes ruled by the Werewins Powhatan, often called just Powhatan. We'll get more in depth about him next week, but through inheritance, alliances, and conquering other tribes, he ruled almost the entire coastal region of modern-day Virginia. The Pospag tribe was part of the Powhatan Confederacy, and they were not fans of the Europeans. But they had many good reasons not to be. They had some issues with the Spanish years prior, and when I say issues, I mean direct, bloody conflict. And if that wasn't bad enough, the Spanish decided that they needed some interpreters on their travels. Hey, you know who learns languages quickly? Children. Yup, with pistols drawn, they took Paspag children from their homes to come with the Spanish. They believed that children could learn languages faster and all but one of those children were never seen again. There was one who went along with an earlier group of Christian missionaries. Some writers say that he went of his own volition, others that he was taken. He was a child and actually went to Spain, learned Spanish, and was supposed to help the Jesuit missionaries reach out to the Paspeg and other Native Americans. Well, when he returned to North America with the Jesuit missionaries, he informed his captors slash coworkers that he would go find his father, the chief, and be right back. And taking the chance to escape, he did. There's some debate as to whether Don Luis came back. That was a Spanish name. If he did, it was four months later, in the middle of winter, and he took part in the killing of eight priests. They didn't kill a little boy servant that was with him, but they did take him captive. That spring, a Spanish ship saw an oddity, a Native American man wearing missionary garments. They captured the men, who quickly told them about the massacre. Word spread quickly among the Spanish, and soon 30 soldiers were searching the area. In addition, the captain lured several natives aboard his ship with gifts and promptly took them captive. He used the captives as hostages to secure the servant boy's release. And he achieved it. So he released his captives, right? I mean, that was the deal. Except that, when he heard of Don Luis's involvement, the Spanish captain demanded that he be turned over and punished. Basically, the Spanish captain was altering the deal. The chief, unwilling to turn over his son to the people who had kidnapped him and taken him a world away, said no. The captain shrugged. He took the captives, baptized them, and hung them from the ship's yards. Basically, the crossbar. The last look the Paspeg people got at the Spanish was one where their people were swaying, dead, on the crossbeams of the Spanish ships. Okay, so we've established how much the Pospeg disliked and mistrusted Europeans. Well, guess who claimed the Jamestown Peninsula as part of their territory? The Pospeg. Not only that, but when the chief came to say to the English essentially that we're okay, but just barely, the English wouldn't put their pistols down. To him, the English should have asked permission to settle on his land. And this was a way to reopen talks. As you can see, it did not reopen talks. Days later, President Wingfield was happy. John Smith was out with Newport, exploring, and so he wasn't the constant thorn in the president's side. Maybe he could actually get some work done. Well, not him, but the people he told to work on his behalf. He was seated, dipping his quill in the ink jar, when he felt a sting on his chin. He rubbed his fashionably long beard. Ow! What was that? It was then he noticed stuck in the barrel not too far to his left, an arrow 
with a few strands of his hair stuck in the wood. He looked to the edge of the fort, to rows of sticks that barely qualified as a fence, and saw 200 men running towards Jamestown. Arrows whizzed through tents, and moments later, shots exploded out of the tents from the other side. As men leapt up and fired blindly through the cloth, the tents flashing with explosions from within. When I say the guns were on the ship, it was really mostly the big guns, like the muskets. People still had the smaller pistols on them. That being said, they took a while to load, and they were only accurate to about 25 feet. The arrows, while less lethal, were deadly accurate to 40 feet in the hands of the natives, who had trained very nearly their whole lives with them. As leaden rounds and arrows flew back and forth, the men of Jamestown began to despair. They were outnumbered two to one. They could reload and maybe keep these people who weren't familiar with the pistols at bay, but only for so long. Men were already going down from multiple arrows between rounds. The men of Jamestown knew they would die here, and they would have, if not for one well-placed shot. And when I say well-placed shot, I mean cannonball that missed wide. Since the start of the attack, a few men had been aboard one of the ships, and they started getting the cannon ready. He aimed at the attackers and hit the tree right next to them. The trunk exploded into splinters, and the tree creaked as it started coming down on the group. All were able to get out of the way, but with the English firing guns and now cannons from their ships, the natives decided that this wasn't going to be the simple, quick eradication of all the English at Jamestown that they had planned. They were treated. One very specific author says that 17 English were wounded and two were killed, and that people guess, based on accounts, that one native man was wounded. Other accounts say that many people died on both sides. But based on the bad stuff about what's going down over the next few months, the writers stopped getting specific on who died of what. Returning to the fort, John Smith saw wounded men unloading their guns from the ships, as he had recommended in the first place. The next few days were harrowing for the English. Instead of a stick fence, they had started cutting wood and built an actual thick triangular fort. The woods were no longer the hopeful edge of the new world, either, but dangerous. And at night, they didn't know if two or two hundred eyes were looking back at them. Two days after the big attack, they found a dog shot dead outside the partially constructed wall with 40 arrows in him. A few more days passed, and a man came running back to the fort, screaming, with six arrows in his back. He lived for another week. A few hours after, another man went missing. He was found with his pants down and an arrow in his head. He had stepped out to go to the bathroom. Two men were at the gate, unarmed. They were yelling Wingapo, Algonquin for friend. They had been driven off yesterday by a man on the wall with a gun, but they were persistent and unarmed. They said that they only wanted to talk, and they did. The English learned that the tribes closest to them were the most hostile. As it turned out, this land wasn't quite as unoccupied as they thought. The tribes sympathetic to the English, of which these two men were members, were farther away, but they would try to intercede for the English. While Smith and Newport were journeying up the James River, they learned of someone to the north. He was reportedly called Powhatan, and if Smith understood correctly through his very poor grasp of the Algonquin language, he was not just a chief, he was the chief. He controlled not one tribe, but 30. 
the English eventually learned from the tribes friendly to them that this paramount chief had decided to take an interest, and the Paspeg would be bagging off for a bit. Not forever, and not completely, that wasn't how the Powhatan Confederacy worked, but for a moment, the English would have respite from hostilities. They could look out their fort without arrows flying from the tall grass. The English traded for food with the natives, and the natives received trinkets and other things. Fish were biting, and the mild Virginia spring was pretty great. This whole colonization thing, it was looking pretty good. Then, one man got sick. Then another. At first it was nothing, just vomiting and swelling and stuff. Then more people got sick. The bugs were horrendous, and though they correctly deduced that it was the source of disease, they couldn't do anything about it. They were living outside. Then, mere days later, the deaths started. Jamestown actually seems like a pretty terrible place, and I'll tell you why. That's because there's a massive swamp right next to the town. It's still there to this day. The water is literally green. In addition, the James River, the one that the settlement was next to, wasn't super consistent with its flow, and during the summer, it fluctuated. Sometimes the seawater would flow back in, and, even worse, the wastewater that they assumed was going out to sea would come back and affect their brackish drinking water because, yes, they had still not dug a well and they were drinking from the river. Around this time, the trading with the natives ground to a halt too, and we'll talk about that next episode. So, not only were they diseased and drinking seawater, but they were starving as well. In the summer after they arrived, a large number, some sources say half, others say two-thirds of the colonists, died, either from starvation, saltwater poisoning, or disease. At times, only five men were well enough to either stand guard or haul bodies out of the town. It was November, and John Smith was trudging through the forest. Things had gotten worse before they got better, but heading into winter, they would now need all the supplies they could get for the men that had survived the summer. They were still heavily reliant on the natives for food, but the investors back in London were pressing for another, less practical goal, the passageway to the Pacific. It had to be around here somewhere, and that's what led John Smith so far into unknown territory. He also managed to have some trading trips with the Chickahominy tribe, one ruled by the mysterious Powhatan's brother. These trading trips are debated. In John Smith's letters and writings, they were completely voluntary, and the people were happy to heap things like corn and wheat on him for trinkets like scrap copper and beads. He says that in a time of famine, they were chasing after him to give him food in exchange for what the English viewed as junk. The Powhatan oral tradition presents quite a different view of Smith, with him walking into villages and putting a pistol to the head of the chief and demanding food and supplies, only throwing back some junk and considering it a trade when he and his goons left. Regardless, John Smith got the feeling, as he pressed more and more villages to trade more and more items, that he was starting to wear out his welcome. That's when he decided to take a break from the trading, and that's why he was out in the forest with a native guide. It was evening, and the sky was orange as they picked their way through the forest. Even though it was southern Virginia, it was still November, and Smith could see his breath as the guide walked in front of him. They didn't talk. 
At this point, Smith only knew enough of the Algonquin language to meet very basic needs. He did notice the man freeze, listen, and gasp. The guide turned around, and Smith could understand the word that he was frantically shouting. It was, run. That's when he heard the shot, far off at the boat. It was the signal that he had told his men to give if anything went bad. So far from Jamestown, he was worried, and almost simultaneous with the shot from the river, he heard sounds in the forest all around him. In the haze of twilight, he saw the silhouettes of men emerge from the trees, arrows strung in bows. His guide looked at the men surrounding them. He was in a panic, and he was yelling something about Smith being a leader, about not harming him. Smith, maybe not realizing that this man was trying to save his life, but also maybe just being John Smith, pulled the guide close, drew his pistol, and aimed it out at the crowd. He spun around and around, using the guide as a human shield. Pistol aimed at the men. The guide was weeping and pleading, screaming something about sparing them. Smith saw one man draw back an arrow, and without hesitation, Smith pulled his trigger and shot the man in the stomach. The arrow flew and buried itself into Smith's thigh. His hands going to his thigh, the guy took the opportunity to break free and run. The natives knew enough about the guns now, and they knew the pistol wasn't a danger without the not at all quick reload process. They ran to Smith and threw him on the ground. All the arrows were now ready to fly at Smith's head. Looking at the blood flowing from his thigh, he dropped the pistol on the ground and pulled out the arrow. Arrows and clubs aimed at his head. The team of Chickahominy hunters stripped him of his weapons and supplies and bound him. If he was an English leader, like his guide had claimed, then their leader, the mysterious Powhatan, would want to meet him. Next week, we'll look at things from the perspective of the Powhatan people and meet Pocahontas, one of the chief's many, many children. We'll see just how not threatening the English are to thousands upon thousands of trained warriors, and how, while we can't say beyond the shadow of a doubt that John Smith isn't lying about a naked 11-year-old Pocahontas saving his life, we can be almost certain that John Smith is lying about a naked 11-year-old Pocahontas saving his life. I want to say thanks to abhorring you, Livy Live Juice Juice, Tex S, MOP Update, I'm Not a Man But an Idea of a Man, all one word, Northern Monkey, Agginess or Agginess, Agginess or Agginess, Maralinda78, In Black Ink, Pony Nut, Safety Pin 27, Is Muck Fab, Retro Cat 23, M. Moyeti, Osgibo1987, and Skooker for the reviews on iTunes. Seriously, thank you all so much. I really appreciate it, and it's really great to hear from you. And if you'd like to leave a review, the iTunes app is still the best place for now. And you can find it on there or online at itunes.mythpodcast.com. There's also a membership thing on the site. For less than the price of granulated wolf urine, you can support the show and get extra episodes and source pack ebooks that also won't be effective at keeping coyotes out of your yard. According to the reviewers, the granules don't work. You need to get real sloshy wolf urine. Since I'm at a complete loss for how to transition away from that, just check out support.mythpodcast for more info on the membership, not urine of any sort. The Creature This Week 
is the Langsir from West Malaysian folklore. And they are terrifying. They are creepy women and they can be identified by the hair that grows down to their feet. That in itself isn't weird for a normal person. People can have very long hair. What is a bit stranger are the creature's talons. The long hair does serve a purpose though. It hides the hole she has in the back of her neck. Why does she have a hole in the back of her neck? Because folklore, that's why. Her list of hobbies include stealing fish out of nets of fishermen. Not scary enough for you? Okay, well this creepy old woman will also fly up into the rooms of infants to suck their blood in the night, the moment that the baby is left alone. As if there weren't enough reasons to be terrified as a new parent, you also apparently have to worry about a vampiric, betaloned creature attacking them the moment they are alone. For as creepy and evil as this creature seems, they have tragic backstories. They are apparently the results of women who died in childbirth. There's a way to stop this creature though. All you must do is capture the creepy floating woman with talons that you found in your child's room in the middle of the night. You need to cut her hair and nails and shove them in the hole in the back of her neck. If you think she shrieks and dies like most creatures, then you'd be wrong. She actually turns back into a normal woman. So yeah, the next time your baby cries, grab a fresh diaper and a bottle, sure. But you also might want to grab the nail clippers and a pair of scissors because you might find yourself giving an impromptu haircut and manicure. That's it for this week. The theme song is by the band Broke for Free and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. Links to the other music I used are in the show notes. And also, today's episode was brought to you by Weebly. Weebly was created for people with the courage to start their own business. You don't need to know how to be a web designer or know how to code, and it's simply drag and drop to quickly build and publish your site. It's that easy. Creating a fantastic website shouldn't get in the way of your dreams. Join the over 30 million people who are already dreaming big with Weebly. Get started today for free at weebly.com myths. That's W-E-E-B-L-Y dot com slash myths. Weebly.com slash myths. And that's it for this week. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.